And welcome back to the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast. This is Kyle Kensing, and joining me once again this week after a one-week hiatus, Mr. Jeff Twining, our Mountain West maven and North County Times high school football reporter extraordinaire. Jeff, what's going on? Not a whole lot, Kyle. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Glad to have you. And uh, this week, we're excited to jump into week four. Some good matchups. Uh, West Virginia and LSU are game of the week, but a lot else going on. You got Florida State and Clemson and the ACC matchup. Those teams both in the top 25 uh, coming off two opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their big games last week. And uh, this week, also TV premiere season, which is always an exciting time for everybody, I'm sure. And uh, Jeff, I know you got some thoughts on that. Why don't the why don't you give us your opinion on on some of the uh, hot topics that? Uh, I'm going to try that again, Jeff. Talk to me about the TV premiere season and what you think about it. Well, Kyle, I got a couple thoughts about that. I was writing uh, my column for this other blog that I write for, and uh, I was bringing up this idea of. Uh, wrestling fans and sports fans and the types of TV shows that they watch. And I was talking to my girlfriend. She mentioned that she uh, watches very few dramas and actually focuses most of her uh, TV time on comedies and reality TV. And so you you and I have both share a love for uh, professional wrestling. And I thought about my TV watching and I realized that I don't watch a whole lot of dramas and, and as, as I tried to think about that, I realized I don't watch dramas because I'm a sports fan. If I want drama, I'm going to watch sports. And I think if, if you're looking to get that, you know, that escape from sports for a while, you usually turn it into comedy, something that makes you happy. And so the, the urge that I have to all sports fans out there is to uh, maybe take a look at becoming a professional wrestling fan. I think that one of the big benefits of watching professional wrestling is that you you get to see these guys who are who are great athletes. It it has it's a show that has a sports angle to it. But what you need to understand when you watch wrestling is it's not all about the sports angle. Just like any sport right now, the media loves to talk about the storylines, what's going on behind the scenes. And I think wrestling does a good job providing that for sports fans. You get to see the athleticism, you get to see the sport wrestling side, but it's more about the journey to see what happens in the match that's the most important. So I don't know if you if you have any thoughts on that before I continue into a little bit about the premieres that are coming up. Well, I got to tell you, the I, I think you have an excellent point. Uh, I can't quite explain. See, you have a much deeper appreciation. I personally like to shut my mind off for two hours and uh, tune into that. But I definitely agree with what you mean as far as the storylines and dramatics of the sports world. Uh, I think that you're kind of seeing that quite a bit right now. Uh, one of the big games this week, one that really uh, there's a lot of talk about the dramatic element to it, San Diego State and Michigan. You do kind of get that where there's that that storyline, that uh, that breakup going on. To go back to the wrestling analogy, this is going way back into the old school, but uh, Brady Hoke perhaps is Paul Orndorff turning his back on San Diego State's Hulk Hogan. Uh, Maybe some people say it that way. Maybe some don't. Uh, Ryan Lindley in his press conference said that they're not really too concerned about that. But, you know, any player is going to say that when they're facing their old head coach. Uh, yeah, I, think, I, I think it's that game specifically has a great has a great storyline to it that the media should latch on to. You have Brady Hoke, who uh, I think was he was he the Mountain West coach of the year last year? I, I believe so. Yeah. So so he built up a program that had, you know, numerous losing seasons before he joined, you know, joined the team, comes in, leads him to a 9-4 and four season, uh, leads him to a point-setable victory, and like I like to say, it's kind of like the, uh, it's kind of like the contract year in baseball, you perform really well, you're rewarded with that big contract, and you jump at that first opportunity, so it does, it does set up this perfect dramatic storyline, this up-and-coming Mountain West uh, team loses their head coach, who jump ship to go to the big house and now they have a chance to go into the big house the very next year and get their revenge and i think what's most interesting about that that angle and, and ryan lindley would say that 
oh yeah, they're not really thinking about it. But I don't believe that for a minute. I think the most interesting angle is the heat that you have in this matchup. You have Brady Hoke. You have him coaching a very, very steep tradition Michigan team. Going up against his opponent, these this, these kids at San Diego State that are trying to get make a name for themselves. You have Ryan Lindley, who's trying to become one of the top quarterbacks drafted in the NFL. Ronnie Hillman, who's got a Heisman campaign. But they're still the younger brother. They're the younger brother to Michigan, and they're the ones that are trying to you know, get put over, get pushed to the top, so they can be one of the favorite teams in the, in the country. Now, one thing that I have to disagree is uh, when you say Brady Hoke taking the first opportunity, I do know it feels that way with him only coaching there two seasons, but a couple of weeks before Michigan offered him that job, Minnesota actually offered him the job that went to Jerry Kill, and he had turned that down. I think really this is and this is the one aspect in which I feel maybe there isn't that bad blood existing, is he did show loyalty to the program. He didn't just take the first BCS conference gig that was pushed his way. Uh, but Michigan, you know, he was an assistant there. He had he had roots there, and it was really a, a dream job, essentially. You know, he got, he got the one offer that I think was too good to pass up, which I, in that regard I could see where the bad blood might not exist. But what I do see is just a, a real opportunity for San Diego State, like you mentioned, to really sort of prove itself because they're kind of flying under the radar. And for Ronnie Hillman, what's interesting to me is that back in the summer, I did a little story on SaturdayBlitz.com about reevaluating, reassessing the Heisman Trophy races. And one that really stands out to me is 1992 when Gino Toretta won it from Miami, despite having not a very great season. Miami was a great team, but he won the award without necessarily being the top guy. And Marshall Falk probably should have won it and didn't. And Marshall Falk didn't really get that sort of marquee game that Ronnie Hillman's getting against Michigan. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the benefits, though, now, I guess you go, that that's back in 1992. I think now what you, you look at is with the BCS argument and you have these these lower conference non-BCS teams trying to make a push to, to gain relevancy on the national scale. And, and I think you're going to have, what you'll see this year, in my opinion, is more smaller school guys getting looks for Heisman, if, assuming that they can continue what they've done. I think Ronnie Hillman at this point is averaging 165 yards rushing a game. Uh, you would you would hope as a San Diego State fan that that can continue as he goes up against Boise State, TCU, and, and you know goes to the table in the Mountain West. And I think that right here, this this game against Michigan, it's going to be a breakout game for Ronnie Hillman and the entire San Diego State uh, Aztec offense. They've they've kind of like you said been flying under the radar. They had their first big game, you know, the first game against Cal Poly, which obviously you're expected to put up points in them against them. The tough one against Army. And then the second half last week against Washington State, that was, you know, that was really San Diego State Aztec football at its best. And, and hopefully they can get that to carry over going, going back east again. Now, something that I think is interesting with those uh, non-BCS conference players that are trying to get legitimate traction in the Heisman race is how do you go about promoting a guy without it turning into oversaturation? Uh, I feel like Kellen Moore is definitely on the radar but then there's a little bit of, of pushback, it feels like, from things that I read and things that I hear against Boise State. Just from the standpoint, they have kind of been that, that lower-level team that everybody carries the banner for. People are maybe a little bit sick of hearing about them. It's a lot like uh, Joey Harrington in 2001 with his Heisman campaign, where they pushed him to the point of you just didn't want to see him anymore. And this bringing us full circle uh, when we jump in talking about TV premiere season and that sort of thing. When you have a television series that a network really buys into and they're really pushing hard, you walk that sort of fine line. Like, you don't want Ronnie Hillman to be somebody that, you know, if, if he's pushed so hard as this is our guy, he can win the Heisman, check him out, check him out, check him out, and he has one bad game. People are going to remember that one bad game because he's been pushed so hard. It's sort of like that, uh, that show Whitney, which premieres tonight, that I have no intention of watching. By pushing it so hard, NBC essentially turned me off from from ever even giving it a chance. Yeah, and I hey, go ahead. Oh, what I was going to say is that yeah, that's a good point. I know that with with TV, especially as we go into this premiere week, it is all about pushing the dramas. Especially now, you're coming 
out of the out of the summer, which is a horrible TV time, and you're starting to push all these new pilots. And, and I think that what you do have to avoid, like you were saying, is that oversaturation factor. And what's difficult with these smaller conference teams is you almost have to get the guy that you're promoting out there at the beginning, and or at least they try to do that, put him out there and say, this is our guy, this is who we're you know, pushing for the Heisman. I think with Ronnie Hillman at San Diego State, it's been a little bit more under the radar. Uh, Ryan Lindley was the big guy coming back, the senior quarterback, uh, one of the you know most likely going to be a top ten draft pick or at least a first round draft pick as a quarterback. And so I think you you have to one you have to let the numbers speak for themselves. And with that goes the same with sitcoms. You you can't look at the bloated numbers of week one. You have to look at how the numbers sustain out throughout throughout the season you got to look at week two three four and so with with Hillman you maybe wait until week five or six to see if he's been able to sustain the success until you start seriously promoting him I think a good example uh, with that is uh, I've been getting back into my Xbox and playing some NCAA football 2006 (laughs) and uh, you know one thing you, you get into some of these these video games and they don't they don't tell you who the front runners are for the season-ending awards until, say, week seven. And I think with the with the Heisman race, you always have this at the beginning of the year: guys that are the favorites that get pushed as the favorites. And like you said, they have that one bad game, and immediately they're criticized because they're already there on the national, you know, the national scale. And so, you you really saw that last season with Denard Robinson, who. At the end of September, it was a clear cut. There's no doubt about it. He's going to win the Heisman. And then he struggled with those injuries midseason and sort of fell out of national consciousness to the level that people were almost kind of like, oh, you know, Denard Robinson, like, you know, he, he sucks or whatever. But then you look at his numbers and he was still one of the best quarterbacks in the country. Exactly. And I think that one of the one of the downsides to him is Michigan started losing some games last year, which... You know, as as uh, anybody who's trying to win the Heisman or anybody who's trying to win an MVP award knows, the more the more games your team wins, the more likely you are to win the Heisman. Uh, I think you know a good comparison: Jason White, quarterback at Oklahoma, you know, probably wasn't that good of a quarterback when he did win the Heisman at Oklahoma, but they won games, best player, best team, that you know that whole scenario. And that really wasn't the best of candidate fields that season. That that was kind of a weak class. You know, I think that season you had uh, Herschel Dennis at USC, who uh, actually was supposed to be the original stud running back and ended up getting hurt in 04, which really sort of opened the door for Reggie Bush to become the man. Oh, nice. Yeah. uh, A little bit before my my passionate college football days. (laughs) Well, I I think it's interesting to talk about the, the Heisman and stuff now and keep tabs on what you're talking about at this point because it is kind of interesting to look back um, last season on the incarnation of my site, uh, I wish that the archives for it still existed because I would like to have this in, in print somewhere. But Auburn played Mississippi State in week two. And that week two game, I watched it, and Auburn didn't score a whole lot of points. And Cam Newton threw a couple of balls that were overthrown. But really, you could see the arm strength that he had, that, that same thing that he's exhibiting now, throwing 400 yards for the Panthers. And I, I believe I wrote, this Cam Newton guy is going to be really good in like a year or two. There's no way that in mid-September, I thought he was going to be the Heisman Trophy winner at the end of the year. And kind of tying in with that television analogy, it's, it's the same thing with, uh, with shows that I, that I watch. I remember seeing commercials for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is one of my favorite shows now, and Breaking Bad, which is my absolute favorite show now. Seeing commercials for both and kind of being like, Oh, well, you know, I can't really gauge much about those. Didn't give them a try until I, you know, I think they'd had a, uh, each been on for a season and then ended up loving both. So it's like the Heisman talk now is a little bit premature, like you sort of alluded to, but it is kind of interesting to keep tabs and see how that progresses as the season goes on. So definitely, I just, I'm, just to continue on to that, uh, what, for the TV analogy, one of my favorite shows now is Community on NBC. And... Uh, when I, I remember first watching the pilot or the premiere, and I, I thought it was horrible, and I, I stopped watching. I didn't watch throughout the, the midpoint of the part of the season until people started telling me, hey, you got to check out this show. This is a really good show. And once I started tuning back in, I you know realized that it's, it, it is a good show. And I think 
that the Heisman race kind of goes a lot of that way as well. Uh, I remember the year, um, I think, what, what year was it, Dominican Sue? Was that two years ago? 2009, yep. 2009 when he finished second, correct? The, that's, I, was he second? I, I, was Ger- second? I think Gerhardt was second. In oh, that yeah, though. Gerhardt was second, he was third. But Dominican Sue was another one of those guys that, that completely flew under the radar in terms of, for me, as, as a somewhat casual college football fan, and it wasn't until the end of the year when Nebraska was, was doing well and they made it to the Big 12 championship that, that he had that serious push and people started considering him as a Heisman frontrunner. And I do think that finishing strong really becomes incredibly important. Uh, I think that race was really indicative of that because you know, Toby Gerhardt finishing second, I think without that Notre Dame game when he just was trucking defenders at the goal line and the Stanford crowd stormed the field and was chanting Heisman behind him. That, that was one of the coolest spectacles uh, of that season. I really sort of feel like without that strong performance to end the season, and same with Sue uh, almost killing Colt McCoy in the Big 12 championship game, that those guys probably aren't even in the discussion. And Mark Ingram probably wins it in a walk. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I guess uh, we'll, we'll do a good segue. You were talking about finishing strong in the Heisman as being important. Uh, but also, you're looking at, at college football season as starting strong is, is equally as important. Or, you know, oftentimes when you're a Boise State team and you're playing Georgia in the first game, you have to start strong. So you're, you're looking at the college football landscape right now. We're moving into week four. And I think there are either 33 or 36 undefeated teams, 27 of which are 3-0. and and uh, we got a couple big matchups. We talked earlier, uh, San Diego State-Michigan, I think, is the only matchup this week pitting 3-0 and teams against each other. But I'd like to jump into that West Virginia-LSU matchup. The game of the night, ESPN game day going there Saturday. Uh, what are your initial thoughts on that matchup? Well, the thing that I love about that matchup is I read that Morgantown police are actually going around and collecting as much flammable material as possible to keep it out of public reach so they're really bracing for a big time a big party in morgantown i know that uh, there's nothing that those fans would love more than to set some couches on fire and last season you know west virginia going into baton rouge didn't play the best game patrick peterson kind of he he did a nice job uh attacking that west virginia defense he's gone now or west virginia offense excuse me He's gone now, and the Mountaineers really played a close game there. So it sort of feels like going back to Morgantown, they should have that edge. They say that home field's a 10-point advantage. But, boy, LSU just really impresses the heck out of me. I think their defense, even without Peterson's, actually better. And the thing that's really struck me about them this season is on offense, Jarrett Lee has matured so much at quarterback, it's just astounding. He went from being the human pick six to a pretty competent field manager. And, you know, West Virginia last year was one of the top defenses in the country. So I think it's going to be a little bit of a test for him. But if he can come out and limit his mistakes early, keep the crowd out of it, let the LSU defense set him up, then I think LSU really is going to be able to sort of impose their will and control the the flow of this game. Yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, I know I, I heard the same thing about the burning of the couches and uh, I know you're not the biggest, uh, I don't know if you're a big reader of Deadspin, but they they posted a, a handy map of highlighting all the locations not being policed by the cops, uh, instructing students where they can uh, hopefully safely burn mattresses in the event of a win or a loss. But what intrigue, I think what intrigues me most about this matchup is LSU's defense. And they have been phenomenal through the first, you know, couple games of the season, uh, you look at you look at some of their numbers. I gotta let me pull them up right here. They they've only allowed in, in what they play three games, three now. Yeah. They've, yeah, they've only allowed a total of 143 yards rushing and a total of 480 yards passing. And I think last week they had uh, maybe every I think it was every player but one had a tackle for a loss in that game, and it's. It was a 19-6 to victory, and you, you look at that and you hope, okay, that their offense can come through. And you mentioned 
Jared Lee. Uh, he's been very efficient. He's completing 68% of his passes. So I think the key going into this game is that LSU defense has to come out and know that when they're on the field, that crowd is not going to be as loud as when the offense is on the field. So they're going to be able to hear the audibles. They're going to be able to hear the, you know, the hot calls and the adjustments. And I think that LSU defense is just too damn good uh, for the Mountaineers to overcome and, and get the upset. Absolutely, and especially still sort of transitioning into their new scheme. I think back to last season when Oklahoma State played Texas A&M, and that's a rematch that we're going to jump into in a little bit. But that Thursday night game last season, Oklahoma State put up points, but it, the offense wasn't quite the dynamic, well-oiled machine that it ended the season as. You saw Brandon Whedon was still kind of forcing some passes. They weren't entirely comfortable yet. And you're sort of seeing the same thing now with, with Holgerson's group at West Virginia, where they are very spotty. Uh, the Norfolk State game in the first half, they really couldn't get much of anything going. And then, of course, in the second half, blew their doors off. And then last week against Maryland, it was the polar opposite, where in the first half, everything was working, everything was clicking. And then in the second half, they kind of slowed down a little bit, and Maryland nearly jumped back into that game, You know, nearly pulled off the, the upset. It's, it's obviously a great matchup for uh, for ESPN, and you know to go in there on a Saturday night, it's it's clearly going to be the highlight of of a pretty big weekend of football. We talked, you briefly mentioned the, uh, the Clemson, there's a Clemson Florida State game. Uh, which, yep, both of them in the top twenty-five. Both of them in the top twenty-five. Clemson just got the big uh, come from behind victory last week about against Auburn. But the game that I'd like to talk about next is this uh, Arkansas Alabama matchup. Arkansas three and zero. They you I love reading game notes and you you look through Arkansas's game notes heading into their matchup against Alabama. Talks about how they're three and zero. They're leading the nation in a lot of offensive categories. Their kick return yardage is through the roof, uh, and and then you also see that the teams that they've played are uh, Missouri State zero and three, <laughs> New Mexico State zero and three, and Troy zero and two. So they're three and zero. New Mexico. Playing their or New Mexico, sorry, yeah, New Mexico, not New Mexico. My my, my mom's an NMSU alum, and uh, if she's listening to this, she might whap you on the head for forgetting about that big Minnesota win. Yeah, so so New Mexico, correct <laughs> yeah, my air. But regardless, they're three and zero, but their opponents are combined zero and eight. Do you think that any that they might go into this matchup having a little bit of too big of a head offensively, considering the caliber of opponents they played to this point? Well, I think that is sort of interesting. I know that there's no way that they're taking Alabama lightly. And Alabama's defense was excellent against uh, Arkansas last season, holding them to 20 points. And Bama's defense, in terms of its talent and its experience, is better this year. So they really can't... I, I really doubt that beating up on Little Sisters of the Poor is doing too much to inflate their ego. If anything, it might fire them up a little bit. Uh, but I like the, the fact that Bama played a BCS conference opponent on the road, really got out there and tested itself, and I think that's really going to give them a, a tremendous leg up. Now, the th- only thing about this game that concerns me is I feel like Arkansas has a clear-cut edge at quarterback because Tyler Wilson, uh, he actually came on against Auburn last year when Ryan Mallett was injured, played a great game there. I mean, for three quarters, Arkansas was winning, and then there was that very strange turnaround of something like 28 points. But uh, Tyler Wilson, an excellent quarterback, I think really does a great job in Bobby Petrino's system. And A.J. McCarron so far really just hasn't been too impressive, and with the running game and defense that they have, he, he hasn't needed to be. But it's definitely a situation where I feel like Arkansas has a talented defensive front. They're going to be rushing a lot. They're going to be bringing a lot of guys. And they're going to load up that box to try to neutralize Trent Richardson and Eddie Lacy. Maybe force McCarron into more throwing situations if they can get him into third and seven. Make him pass the ball a little bit more. I think that's Arkansas's really their only shot at winning that game. Yeah, I think you. There, there's two other numbers that I want to point out, uh, especially going on a playing a big road game like this for Arkansas. Offensively, uh, they're they're 13 for 13 inside the 20-yard line this year. So every time they've gotten into the red zone, they've scored 10 times those have been touchdowns. And so when I've played in some big games and 
you, you know that your opponents are going to come out gunning for you. You know that their defense is going to be tough, their offense is going to be tough. But at the same time, you have to be confident that once you put yourself in a good situation, you're able to capitalize on that situation. So I think Arkansas has shown so far they're able to do that offensively. And now the other number on, on defense, they have held opponents. Obviously, we talked about the caliber of opponents. But they've held their opponents a 14 of 48 on third down conversion attempts, which uh, I think that's that's, third, that's less than 30%. And then fourth in the SEC, 25th in the country. So I think those numbers, if you can get your opponents to third down situations, the Arkansas defense has shown that they're able to hold and force the punt. And if you can get the ball inside the red zone, inside the 20-yard line, you, you've shown the ability to punch it in and score. And I think that's really going to be huge for them is if they're able to capitalize on opportunities. Uh, obviously, that offense is quite a bit better than Penn State's, and that's really why Penn State was uh, in such dire straits in that game was just the fact that they couldn't get anything going offensively. And obviously, that's a credit to Bama. I believe that Bama's defense is probably the best in the country. If they're not, then they're second to LSU. So Arkansas is just going to need to capitalize on literally every single opportunity. Any window that Alabama gives them, they have to come out with points. They can't go, or they have to come out with six points. I don't think field goals are going to get it done against a team as good as Alabama, and it's not going to get it done playing in Alabama. Yeah, let's, if, if, if you're settling for field goals, you better hope that your defense is holding an Alabama offense to field goals because you can't afford to get down into that into that closed red zone area, kick three points, and then give up seven on the other end. Exactly, exactly. I think that's really going to kind of tell the tale of how that game goes. And uh, realistically, I feel like whichever team gets the win there, it's going to be a pretty good stepping stone in the rest of the SEC season. Uh, obviously, both of them still have to play LSU, and LSU is actually the team I like the most in that division. But... Either one of them, I feel like, could come away with that top honor. And the other three teams, Mississippi State's a good team, but not quite on that same level. Auburn's a good team, not quite on that same level. And Ole Miss is just an absolute dumpster fire. They need to just focus on what they're going to do in the future, which their future is not going to include Houston Nutt, barring an unbelievable run, which I just can't see happening. Yeah, and you're, you're talking about that SEC, and I think another team in there, uh, I know we were going to get to our surprise teams, but... One that I was looking at is uh, Vanderbilt. They're yeah. another one of the, the 27 3-0 teams. And uh, they, they beat Elon in their first game. It's obviously one of their cupcake opponents. But then since they beat UConn and Ole Miss, and it, the schedule gets real tough for them as uh, they got a big matchup this weekend at number 12 South Carolina and then next week travel to Alabama. But you look at these next two games and you think, God, if they can get one of them, they'd have a chance to finish with a really good season. And I think they end with uh, West Virginia the last game of this. Oh, no, sorry, that's uh, I think it's something else. But but basically, I think Vanderbilt has a chance to surprise some people if they can get a win either this week against South Carolina or next week against Alabama. Absolutely. And I feel like Vanderbilt is clearly better than Kentucky. I feel like that's a game they should really get. Uh, I think James Franklin getting them to a bowl so quickly into his tenure would just be outstanding. This is actually the first time they've started 3-0 and since pre-World War II, which is just unbelievable. Um, if, if they can steal one of those games. Now, an interesting point on the South Carolina game this week is their other opponents, Ole Miss and UConn namely, are teams that have sort of had some issues at quarterback. And I feel like South Carolina is that same team where, they, where Steven Garcia isn't really clicking yet. Now, the big difference, of course, is that neither one of those other two teams have a running back the caliber of Marcus Lattimore, who right now, if I was voting on the Heisman today, I think I would probably be choosing between either him or Robert Griffin at Baylor. So that's going to, I don't expect Vanderbilt to do too well in that game, especially being on the road, but James Franklin's doing a really great job, and, and that's really great to see. I like to see some of these teams that are flying under the radar or just have traditionally been bad pick it up and, and start off the season strong. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's always great to see. I mean, you, you look at, at the, the matchups in the first couple weeks of the season, you always have those, the, the bad matchups, the Florida against Florida International or 
know, whatever you want. Whoa, you whoa, want whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, hold on. we got to stop because one of your 3-0 and teams is Florida International. And quite frankly, I am jumping on the FIU for 12-0 and bandwagon. They've beaten UCF and Louisville now, and they get Troy at home. And I'm, I'm, I'm declaring it right now. Uh, I am switching my coaching allegiance. My official coaching crush of 2011 is Mario Cristobal at FIU. So you can go ahead and and, and recant that one. It's uh, I, I, I take that back. I was uh, I was I, I was mistaken. I didn't realize Florida International is three. You know, <laughs> maybe you could look at a Florida A and M as more of the uh, the appropriate cupcake opponent. Coming or Florida out. Atlantic with uh, Howard Schnellenberger in his last yep. season. Schellenberger, he's retiring, yeah. Schellenberger's stepping down, and I think, and this is something that I actually wrote uh, a couple of weeks ago before FIU played Louisville, is the fact that FIU really did it the right way in terms of building up a new program. I feel like if you're starting up from scratch like FIU, your best route is to get a young coach, let him have some time to build, get the guys in there he needs, and let him kind of do things his way. And then once he starts to find success, keeping him there. Uh, I think the biggest thing FIU did, actually, was they signed Mario Cristobal to a four-year extension immediately after they won their bowl game last year. And I think going that route, as opposed to trying to make waves with uh, hiring a name like FAU did and hiring Schnellenberger, you really are doing more in terms of building your program. Yeah, but I I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Schnellenberger's done some good things at Florida Atlantic, and I think, aren't they getting a new stadium? Are they getting a new stadium this year or recently? Uh, they are getting a new stadium, and they did go to two bowl games under him. Uh, they, I believe that they actually won both their bowl games. And I, I don't mean to slight Schnellenberger. I, he's obviously an outstanding coach, uh, has been throughout his career. But he's leaving now. He's leaving with FAU on a decided downturn. And he's leaving with other programs in Florida kind of taking off. I mean, you're seeing FIU really get going. And I think Skip Holtz has the potential to turn USF into a legitimate national powerhouse sooner than later. No, definitely. USF, that's another one of those uh, 3-0 and teams. And they, uh, they're the ones I, I was saying earlier. They have that season-ending matchup against West Virginia and, I mean, last, last week we were talking Florida A&M. They put up 70 points against Florida A&M. And I think that, you know, any team, no matter how good or bad you are, any team that can put up 70 points in a game, I'll tell you, that's a good offense. Because it, it takes, you know, it, it takes skill to score. It takes skill to score a lot. And it takes skill to score often. And to put up 70 points in a game, you're scoring a lot and you're scoring quick. And you're you're not having much trouble. So yeah, South Florida's another one of those teams. They started with that big win against Notre Dame. Not many people thought that they would get that. Actually, uh, that was uh, Lou Holtz went against his always picking Notre Dame uh, philosophy and actually picked South Florida in that in that season opening game. So I think they do. They got a pretty good schedule going forward. They have a chance to do some big things and get to a pretty good bowl game this year as well. I think you could even potentially see them into a BCS Bowl. Uh, I know West Virginia, we're going to really get a good insight into how how prominent they are this season. Uh, depending on how they fare against LSU, I'm kind of holding off judgment on, on the Big East yet. But I really feel like USF's a team that when they do face West Virginia in that finale, that could be to determine who plays in the Orange Bowl. Yeah, and to, uh, to South Florida's benefit, that game is in Tampa. So West Virginia is going to have to go down there. I think it's a, you know, it's a mid or early early December game. I think one of the, the last last of the season, or maybe it's mid November. I can't, I can't. Well, and USF has has done a great job of beating West Virginia when they come down to Tampa. I believe that they have uh, have a, a nice little win streak going against uh, against the Mountaineers at home uh, the last two games, oh seven and oh nine. So that's, uh, I think that's definitely a team to watch, not just now, but if they keep Skip Holtz around, I think that's a program that's going to be on our national radars for a decade or so, much in the same way that Florida State was in the 90s and is getting back to that level now. But when you talk about USF scoring 70 points, one of the statistics that was interesting to me this past weekend is three teams, USF included, put, it up, put up 700-plus yards. You had them, you had Missouri, and then Georgia Tech, and Georgia Tech was the only team to do so against a BCS or football bowl subdivision opponent. And they host uh, North Carolina, who's yet again another one of those 3-0 and teams. 
are you buying or selling a team like Georgia Tech as being a potential squad you could see maybe competing for their conference title by the end of the year? You know, that's that's tough. I'm not. I don't know much about uh, the Georgia Tech team. I, I I do know that they are the highest scoring team in the country. I think they're just under 63 points per game. Uh, they've scored. They, they've put up 60 points twice so far this year, including last week. But uh, you know, we'll see. Like what we're going to see with West Virginia this week, we'll we'll really see what kind of team Georgia Tech is going to be this year when they play North Carolina. I believe it's a home game for Georgia Tech. It is. Yep. It is. Okay. So I, I think that this is every team who starts well and gets through their opponents in the first couple games has that early season test, whether they're playing the one of the top teams or they're just playing a very difficult opponent. They always have that early season test that determines whether they're going to have a good season or they're going to have a run-of-the-mill season. I think this is that game for Georgia Tech. And, you know, if they can keep scoring points, you don't even need to have a good defense if you can put up 60 every weekend. No, and I think really uh, there's that cliche, you know, about defense wins championships. And I wrote this in regard to the Alabama-Arkansas game, but it doesn't matter how good your defense is if you're not getting points. And Georgia Tech's the exact opposite. I feel like right now they're running that triple option with such precision that there really isn't much of anybody that looks like they can stop them. Uh, Granted, their competition hasn't necessarily been the best, but it's not necessarily the worst either. Uh, Kansas struggled last year, uh, as we know, but uh, them and MTSU, I feel like, are teams that aren't necessarily that indicative of where Georgia Tech is. But in the same regard, I mean, that they're scoring huge points on those teams, and they're not awful teams. I mean, we're not talking Oregon putting 69 up on Missouri State or anything like that. We're, we're talking about, you know, a Big 12 team and a team that's gone to, to back-to-back bowl games. So Georgia Tech really, to me, that's one of those under-the-radar teams that I'm really keeping a close eye on this week. I feel like if they get a win over Carolina, who's playing a little bit better than, than I know I expected them to, then I might start thinking, all right, this this might be the team that's that's the dark horse that could uh, force the issue, maybe get into that ACC title game. Yeah, exactly. And with that with that triple option, what's difficult? What what it, it poses so much uh, problems for a defense. And I've talked before in the past. I don't remember if it was uh, on the podcast two weeks ago or just like I've talked with you of of matchups and and how long you have to scout a team and to prepare for a team. And, uh, you know, when you have Georgia Tech coming in, running the triple option, you, you have the offensive line where they're coming forward and they're going full force on every single play. And the defense knows every play, what they're doing. But the key is they don't know where they're going. And that's the hardest part. The hardest part is having the time to scout and scheme to stop a bunch of different uh, rushing attacks on the same play. And you, you just don't have that much time in a week. San Diego State, we've talked about, has benefited their first two weeks uh, against playing a triple option team their first two games. They had all offseason to prepare for the first game, and then going into their matchup against against Army, when they gave up over 400 yards rushing and only had the ball for 17 minutes, they had already gone against an opponent of of, of that type of offense. So they knew what they were doing going in, and they had that much more time to prepare. I just hope that North Carolina is ready for the triple option because if they're not, if they get guys caught looking for the ball, getting their eyes caught, you know, stuck in the backfield, trying to find out who has the ball, where it's going, they're going to get burned for some long touchdowns. And I think you really hit on an important facet there is that triple option. Uh, Everett Withers said it best in his press conference this week. He said that that's the kind of offense that you can't prepare for in just one week. That's something that they start practicing for. Uh, in in the preseason because they know that they're going to see it eventually. And I think it's such, that's part of the reason that that poses such a difficult uh, matchup for so many teams. I mean, you saw South Carolina almost lose to Navy. And in terms of sheer talent, everybody knows South Carolina is a deeper, more talented team than Navy. But if one of those teams can control the ball, then that really gives them uh, an outstanding chance to win. And Georgia Tech, they're not necessarily a team that I'm expecting to get to double-digit wins. Uh, Before the season, I was thinking that they were maybe like a seven-game winner. I'm starting to rethink that. Maybe it's closer to eight or nine because they aren't quite there defensively. 
But in terms of controlling the ball, I think they'll certainly win games that they shouldn't. Yeah, exactly. And I think that uh, with the with the triple option, the biggest thing with that is holding on to the ball and and not turning it over. And the, the difficult thing for scheming in terms of defense is is that you can coach and you can teach players to do their assignment. And you tell that defensive end, you say, when the quarterback's coming right down the line at you, don't worry about where the running back is. Don't worry about the pitch man is. Your job is to hit the quarterback. But when you have a skilled offense that knows how to run, and not only they know how to run their offense, but they know how the defense is going to defend their offense, that's when you start getting guys that the, the, the defense comes in and the guy has the quarterback right in his sights, but then he thinks, oh, he's going to pitch it, and that moment of hesitation is what will really hurt you defensively. So if, if Georgia State can can hold on to the ball and can protect the ball, I think that they, I think they beat North Carolina. Now, I want to wrap this up by talking a little bit. You had mentioned that we were going to jump into some of our uh, surprises of the season. Obviously, we talked Georgia Tech. We talked Vanderbilt. But who are the three teams right now that you feel like are the most surprising pleasantly? And then who are the teams you feel like are the most disappointing to you so far? Well, uh, with the surprising teams, uh, I think that sticking in my Mountain West, I've become a big uh, Mountain West fan, San Diego State is... Is, is surprising to me that they that they beat Army uh, specifically the way that they did, and I don't think it's so much that I'm surprised they're three and zero, but I think it's after what they've gone through in their last two games, I'm surprised that they made it through with victories. Uh, that Army game, Army had the ball for 43 minutes. 43 minutes, Army had the ball, and San Diego State still won. Against Washington State, they came and scored 27 unanswered points to just end up blowing out the Cougars. And so, yeah, San Diego State, definitely one of my surprise teams. Uh, and then again, staying in the Mountain West, uh, Wyoming. Wyoming, yeah, big win for them yeah. over Bowling Green. Yeah, they got a big win over Bowling Green. They, they struggled in their opening game against Weber State. Understandable, Weber State's a perennial uh, FCS playoff team. So it's, it's somewhat understandable there. They're 3-0 now, and, and they actually have a really big matchup uh, at home against Nebraska this week, who, uh, yeah, they just blew out Washington last week, but the week before that, they struggled against Fresno. And so I think that, I think that matchup this weekend, Nebraska at Wyoming, is another, is another one to watch. So those are, I know we've, we've talked about Georgia Tech and Vanderbilt as well as my surprise teams, uh, but a, a disappointment, I think Notre Dame is, is, Disappointing in the fact that they're they're one and two right now. What I find disappointing is that they're still getting votes in the top twenty-five poll, uh, and and I think that that's that's just a little absurd. And and the other another somewhat uh, disappointing team, uh, even given their current record right now, two and one is TCU. They they came out and they lost the big one against Baylor in the opening week, which that you know that was a that was a big game. It was in Waco, tough place to go. They come out the next week in a game. I expected them to lose to Air Force, and they end up blowing out Air Force. And so you think, okay, the next week against Louisiana Monroe, it's going to be a cupcake opponent. They'll win easily. And they end up giving up 17 points in the first quarter. So I think that that's a little disappointing to me that that a defense that was number one in the country last year is having so much trouble being consistent through the early part of the season. No, I think where I can sort of defend TCU is they went from Baylor playing the spread that it plays where Robert Griffin can sort of freelance and go crazy when he needs to, to going to the triple option at Air Force and then going back to a spread at Louisiana Monroe. I think that's kind of a a difficult transition to make in three consecutive weeks. But I do agree with you there where you see them sort of giving up more points than they had in the past. Yeah, Definitely, and I, I know that one thing that TCU does boast is the one of the better linebacking cores in the country. And so I guess you, if you start to play a more traditional traditional offense week in and week out, you would hope that they would they would start to gel. And it, it is encouraging that they they defensively played so well against Air Force, considering like I was talking about earlier, they only did have a week to prepare for that game. So I guess you have you have some level of 
it's it's been good how how they've done. But at the same time, losing that first game to Baylor and then and then struggling at the beginning of the game against Louisiana Monroe is just you know it's a little bit disappointing for me. And they're not the dominating team that I thought they could be before the season started. Do you think that there's any chance that they repeat as Mountain West champions, or do you think Boise State wins this in a walk? I, I, I'm, I'm still not sold on San Diego State not winning the Mountain West. They do get both TCU and Boise at home, and they are, I want to say, 8-1 and one in their last nine at Qualcomm. Yeah, San Diego State, I mean, God, they just had 60,000 people show up to their game against WSU, and and I know that that was a, uh, it was a fire, free fireworks show after, and since I've been to San Diego, I'll tell you, San Diego puts on some of the best fireworks shows <laughs> that I've ever seen. But if they can if they can continue to get those crowds out, that game against Boise State and the game against TCU are going to be huge in terms of establishing San Diego State as a team that's that's one to be reckoned with. And they uh, last year they lost close ones to TCU and Utah and BYU and Missouri. Yeah, I was going to say, I think Missouri, I think they lost four games by a total of 15 points. That's correct, yep. And already this year, they won their first close game against Army. So, Well, the the Army game was a 9 a.m. kickoff for them, uh, 12 p.m. local, but it was 9 a.m. in terms of what San Diego State's used to. And it was the longest trip that any FBS team will take in the continental United States this season. Well, I I didn't realize that, but I do know that... This weekend, they play another 9 a.m. Pacific time game when they go back to Michigan. Mm-hmm. So so that'll be an interesting one. But I, I think Boise State's going to end up winning the Mountain West. I, I can almost say that with, uh, with well, we'll say about 85% certainty. But that San Diego State, I think they're, uh, they're going to finish second. And I think San Diego State beats TCU when they play them later in the season. And when you mentioned the 60,000 that came to Qualcomm for the game last week, something that's interesting to me is San Diego is a city that, deservedly so, has a reputation for being a bit fair weather. But when the city gets on board with a team, they really get on board. I mean, you've seen the Chargers have had a run of success over the last half decade, and people are really into the Chargers here. And last season, San Diego State basketball, with their surprise run, or well not necessarily surprise, but their run to win the, the Mountain West Tournament and going to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA Tournament, the city had Aztec hoop fever, and if the football team can win on Saturday at Michigan, go to 4-0, and I think you're going to see San Diego really rally behind SDSU, and it's going to become where SDSU football becomes a hot ticket that does sort of rival the Chargers. Oh, definitely, and I think that one thing I noticed about San Diego State uh, sports fans is they are uh, big football fans. Uh, they, they talk a lot on the radio about uh, how San Diego fans hold the Chargers to higher standards than, say, the Padres. And I think a lot of that is that the, the Chargers have a much richer success. They have a, more of a history of you know, winning seasons, not necessarily winning Super Bowls. And so I think that there, there's already that hungry football fan in San Diego, and if you give them a San Diego State team on the heels of the San Diego State basketball team last year getting that number two seed in the tournament, you give them a San Diego State team that is going to be competing potentially for a BCS Bowl, I think you're going to see Qualcomm sold out for every Aztec game. They're not going to have to worry about blackouts for those TV games. <laughs> And I think that's really that's an exciting game to me. Uh, this this week four slate is really loaded with games: Arkansas, Bama, West Virginia, LSU. But that's the one that really intrigues me since I'm impacted by it locally. But that's just San Diego State, like you said, they they did a great job winning at Army despite adverse circumstances uh, in the fourth quarter. They really turned it on against Washington State. Whereas last season, any time a game was close in the second half it was always sort of a crapshoot, like it was going to maybe go back and forth in terms of the scoring, like the Utah game. And they sort of have shown a resolve where they've kind of turned that corner and they've learned how to finish. Yeah, definitely. And that, that's all, it's, it's all experience. I think you have a quarterback in Ryan Lindley who's a senior. He's, he and, and a lot of the other guys, I think Hillman was there last year, they've played through that adversity before. They were 9-4 and four last year. And you look at those four games where they lost, you know, they of those four games, I don't think any of them was by more than four points. You, you, 
get one more score in that game, and all of a sudden you're a 10 and three team, or you're 11 and two team, and you are at the top of the Mountain West. So I think San Diego State, if they can get this win against Michigan, it's the it's the big game of the year for them so far. If they can get this win against Michigan, that puts them on their way to seriously compete for Mountain West title. All right, so we got surprise teams, and we'll wrap this up. Let's get final scores on the following six games. We'll go first, San Diego State-Michigan, since we're talking that one right now. Uh, San Diego State-Michigan, let's see, I know that uh, last time they played, it was a 24-21 game, and that was, I think it was back in 2004. Uh, I, you know, I'm going to say San Diego State 31 and Michigan 27. Ooh, that's a, that's a good score. I'm thinking something similar. I think Michigan pulls it out. Uh, I'm going to go with Michigan 35, San Diego State 31. Now, let's see. Uh, we'll go to uh, Arkansas-Bama. Ah, that's, a t- that is a, that's a tough one. You got two good offenses. We talked about tough defense. I, I, I'm pretty sure Alabama's going to win. If I'm going to go, I'm going to go low scoring. I'm going to say 24 to 18. I think, I think Arkansas is going to kick quite a two, two, a couple too many field goals to uh, to pull this one out. I like that pick. Uh, I like that pick so much. I'm going to go with something very similar. Alabama 20, Arkansas 17. Ooh, you're going even lower score than I am. I am. I am. I, I like that Bama defense. Just way too much NFL talent on it. All right, now we go LSU, West Virginia. What do you got? Well, I, I have LSU winning, um, but, man, the, to, to predict points scored by LSU is it's, it's hit or miss. They put up 19 last week, and then they put up, you know, and they put up 40 in their first game against Oregon. So I, I think I'm going to take LSU, but uh, I think it's going to be more of a traditional game. Let's go 28-20 LSU. I, like, I think LSU gets one defensive touchdown. One defensive touchdown. I like that pick. Uh, I'm taking LSU 27, West Virginia 21. Uh, now, I know I said that was our game of the night, and it is our game of the night, but it's not what we're going to finish with. Oklahoma State, Texas A&M, uh, possibly the last matchup between these two programs, barring some sort of bowl game? Yep. Uh, let's see. Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State's offense has been doing pretty well. And they, they do have the the quarterback and the, the passing attack. And is let's all right. Is the game on the road? Is it at A and M? It's at A and M. It is at A and M. I you know I think I'm gonna I'm gonna pick Oklahoma State to go into College Station and get the victory. Ooh. And uh, I'm gonna put that one at uh, let's say thirty to twenty eight. Thirty to twenty eight. I like it. I like it. Now, something that's interesting to me is when we're talking about those September Heisman candidates, a name that I've seen and heard come up time after time is Brandon Whedon. And don't get me wrong, Brandon Whedon is a talented quarterback. And with Justin Blackman, it's kind of hard not to be. I mean, you're throwing to one of the best receivers in college football. But anytime I hear the name Brandon Whedon in association with Heisman Talk right now, I want to rip my hair out because Brandon Whedon has been so turnover prone. He's thrown six picks through two games. I mean, right now he's on he's on a pace to throw for about twenty eight touchdowns, but twenty two interceptions. I don't though exactly those are Brett Favre numbers. Uh, we can we can assume that that Brandon Whedon, even though he's close to Favre in age, isn't quite involved in the same nefarious activities as Brett Favre. But I think that he coughs it up maybe one too many times. Uh, the Texas A&M defense is, is very good at taking advantage of mistakes. And Ryan Tannehill is a guy who's a very good quarterback, doesn't put up gaudy numbers because he's not really in a system that's conducive to that. Uh, Sherman definitely likes to play a more conservative style. But I think Tannehill leads the Aggies to a win. I think it's high scoring. I think it's very close to last season's Thursday night game. I'm going to go Aggies 38, Cowboys 35. Ooh, going with the high scoring one. I think one interesting interesting thing about that game that I'd like to, to see, Texas A&M defense has 11 sacks in the two games that they've played so far, and they do like to blitz, and they but they've shown a propensity to blitz well. I'd like to see Oklahoma State uh, try to get the ball out on some wide receiver screens and you know, and get the defense rushing up field, and then dump it off behind them, and, and then let the offensive line block. So I'd, I'd like to see some screens in that game 
it would be a really great way for the for the Oklahoma State offense to counteract that blitzing Texas A&M defense. All right, now I'll go with this one as our final game, Pac-12 matchup. Two programs that I'll admit as a fan I don't like, but I feel like they're probably the two best in the Pac-12 South. USC, Arizona State, in Tempe, who gets it done? I am picking USC to get this win. Uh, I, I think that what I've seen, I'm not a USC fan, and I, I don't like picking them to win games. But I've seen these first couple games that they uh, their defense is playing really well. And Arizona State has one of the better offenses in the uh, in the in the Pac-12, but I think I think USC is is on the up. They're they're getting over these sanctions. They they're playing with a passion because they can't go to the playoffs. That every game holds so much weight for them, so they can get to the end of the season and prove that they are still the preeminent Pac-12 school. I'm picking USC to win this game. I'm going to go 34-28. Now I'm going to throw some numbers at you really quickly. Do it. Arizona 2009. Washington, 2010. Stanford, 2010. Oregon State, 2009. Washington State, 2002. Oregon, 2010. Cal, 2003. Arizona State, 1999. Arizona State has the longest losing streak to USC of any Pac-12 school, and it's by a considerable margin. And I feel like there's legitimately, I know people with the rise of sabermetrics, we got money ball hitting theaters uh, on Friday. People are really into stats. They don't necessarily buy the mystique of intangibles in sports that much anymore. But there's genuinely some sort of mental block there for Arizona State. I feel like if they had won that Illinois game last week, which is really a low-scoring game, not a very pretty game, that they would have come in with some swagger. I just don't see it happening for them. I don't think that they're quite over that mental hurdle yet. I don't necessarily believe Dennis Erickson is the right guy to wake that sleeping giant, which Arizona State absolutely is. It's a program that they're, they're in an area where people are really hungry for a great college football team. They're at a school that, let's face it, has some lackluster admission standards. They're at a school with some good football tradition. But I don't believe Dennis Erickson's the guy to wake that sleeping giant. I think Arizona State loses a close heartbreaker. And I think it's relatively high scoring. I, I haven't seen anything from the Arizona State defense that really gives me cause to believe that they were worth all that hype. I know everybody's on the Vontez Perfect bandwagon. Great player, don't get me wrong. But one linebacker can't make an entire defensive core. And Missouri was able to put up some big yards on the Sun Devils. And offensively, they still need a running game. I think Brock Osweiler is a very good quarterback. But Arizona State hasn't had anybody near that 1,000-yard mark in Erickson's tenure, and I don't think that's going to change this year. I think Lane Kiffin keeps it relatively conservative, doesn't do the two-point gimmick, doesn't go for it on fourth down in questionable situations, and USC gets a job done 31-28. Uh, 31-28, nice. So we, uh, we both agree Arizona State's going to score about four touchdowns, but uh, not get the victory and I I do agree with that getting over that mental that mental hurdle a little insight into Jeff Twining's high school football past uh, we played uh, just to finish uh, O'Day High School is Seattle Prep's big rival and uh, Seattle Prep used to win they used to win state titles back in the years of an all boys school and uh, I don't think they, I think we're going on a 23 year consecutive losses to our main rivals in uh, in O'Day High School. And, and I go back to, you're talking about a heartbreaker, I go back to my junior year of high school. It is a 7-6, to six, I'm, I'm the kicker, we score on our opening possession, I miss the PAT. I just hook it left. All is in, it was just uh. in my head. And uh, it's we're a 7-6 game going into the fourth quarter. Uh, we Our eyes start to get big. We start to get to a point where we, we haven't been here before. We, we start thinking about it too much. Uh, O'Day ends up beating us 20-6, to six and, and that was a heartbreaker. And I think I, I agree with the idea that, that it's difficult to get over mental hurdles, especially in the Pac-10, or the Pac-12, excuse me, when it comes to USC, because they've been so dominant for so many years that no matter how good they are coming in, 
Arizona State still has to say, my gosh, that's USC, and man, we have not been able to beat USC for uh, you know, 15 years, he said, or some, something like that. Very close, 12 years. But Clinton okay. was president the last time that Arizona State uh, beat USC. So, I mean, that's that's definitely uh, something to consider. Yeah. So, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That's, uh, that's our breakdown of week four. Hopefully, you check out the other podcasts that we have here on SaturdayBlitz.com. Uh, Jeff Twining joining me this week, and I would assume that later today there's going to be a Twining's take on the Mountain West coming up. Maybe not. Who knows? I think I'm finding out right now this is our version of a budget meeting. So, <laughs> uh, Coming up on Friday, actually, uh, I, yeah, I, I really want to get into this this whole realignment issue now. Uh, we, didn't, we, we didn't get to talk about it today. We can talk about it uh, you know, coming up, we've talked about it before, but this the Pac-12 uh, sticking with 12 teams and, and what that means for the Mountain West going forward. So, yeah, that's what we're going to see tomorrow. I like it. Well, thank you very much for tuning in to the SaturdayBlitz.com podcast. I'm Kyle Kensing on behalf of Jeff Twining saying see you next time.